Listener Production. And I thought, oh my God, this isn't a physical problem. This could be a mental problem. And then I said to my GP, I want to talk to a psychologist. And I did, and we got to the bottom of it. And uh, so now, if something like that happens, and it hardly happens, but if it does, I go, oh, it's you again, is it? Okay, well, you know, do your bit and then wander off home, will you? Because I've got things to do. Yeah, I'd always say, look, go and talk to someone. They can only help you. It's not a shameful thing. It's like, I think you're a bit of a dill if you don't go and do it. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. Brian Brown is one of Australia's most iconic blokes. He's been on our screens since the 1970s with his breakthrough role in Breaker Morant. Now, that is my dad's all-time favourite movie, so I watched it quite a bit when I was growing up. Brian has also worked with some of Hollywood's biggest names, including Tom Cruise, Sigourney Weaver and Paul McCartney. Now, Brian is part of a roll call of stars in a series called Court that is on stand at the moment. It is a satirical comedy series. I have watched it and, oh my goodness, my jaw dropped a number of times. And when you watch it, you will know exactly what I mean. And I also laughed out loud. It is very clever. It is very funny. And there are some fabulous performances. Now, I wanted to chat with Brian about where his strong sense of self comes from. And also just quietly, I couldn't wait to hear that resonant Aussie accent that he has. There is something that is so very sexy about it. Oh, Brian Brown, to get you into the studio, to have you behind a microphone, because I think you have the best voice. Really? On screen, off screen, in the movies. It's just beautiful. It's a Westie's voice. (laughs) But is it a Westie's voice? Because I knew, of course, you grew up in the Western suburbs, didn't you? Yeah. I grew up in the Western suburbs of Sydney until I was 25. Then I decided I was going to be an actor, so I sold my car, bought a ticket to England and went to England. Got off the plane and immediately knew that I had to change my accent because I'd never get a job with the accent I had and it was all English and I was going into the English theatre. So from the moment I stepped off the plane, I would change my words phonetically. So if I heard someone, for example, say, we would say, what hour is it, you know, I would listen to them and they'd say, what hour is it? So the word hour became the letter R. So phonetically, I changed my voice and probably within a couple of months, I had this sort of standard English accent. And, you know, I don't have an English accent, but maybe that sort of also did stuff to my accent that, you know, because as far as anyone concerned, you know, I have a very Australian accent, but maybe there's some other thing that uh, sophisticated it. Can you be a sophisticated Westie? <laughs> I think you can because to me, I reckon you are a sophisticated Westie because your accent, to me, it is very like, I mean, I know Russell Crowe, he's a New Zealander, but he's got, to me, the almost the resonant Aussie accent. Heath Ledger had it. 
And I think Mel Gibson in his earlier days had it as well. It's that beautiful, it's just a full, warm-sounding voice. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll I'll wear that. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much I want to talk to you about. But first of all, let's talk about Court. I've watched the first three episodes and you play... An Aussie Prime Minister. I play a Prime Minister. The Prime Minister. The Prime Minister. Warren Whistle. Yeah. Good name. It's a brilliant name. (laughs) We, in fact, had our Prime Minister on the podcast just recently. Oh, did you? And he was saying, Brian didn't tell me he was playing a Prime Minister. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, it's not necessarily based on him. I guess it's not necessarily based on any of them. Uh, However, Kick, who wrote the show, did... Um, deliver a quite a funny Prime Minister, one who hasn't got a clue what's going on in the world or around him. Warren Whistle is a huge fan of Thorpey. Loves Thorpey. So when though we had the PM on recently, I did ask him if he had some advice for you in playing this particular role. Take a listen to what the PM had to say to you. Hey, Brian, I hear you playing the Prime Minister And you're playing a sport-loving Prime Minister who loves and is obsessed with Thorpey and competitive swimming and other things. My one bit of advice is don't try and bowl like John Howard or try to, I don't know how you can swim, mate, but make sure that you don't undermine the standing of Prime Ministers in this country. Do it carefully, please and support the Rabbitohs. Well, there's a couple of things he got wrong there is. It's very hard to undermine any of the Prime Ministers, I would say. (laughs) Yes. And then secondly, he knows full well I'm a Dragon supporter and he knows full (laughs) well I've had a dreadful season and the only little bit of light is that they got kicked out of the finals too, so... (laughs) (laughs) But I'll take, it's very good of the Prime Minister to give me advice. I look forward to when I can give him son. Hmm. I like to hear that you say that you're good at taking advice because when I interviewed your fabulous wife, Rachel Ward, on the podcast, she was saying you're not very good at being bossed around. And she, though, found when she directed you in Palm Beach that she was able to boss you around. I don't know where she thinks I'm not good at being bossed around. Let's get it right. My mother was a Virgo, I married a Virgo, and my first daughter was a Virgo. So these three women told me how my life was going to be. So I don't know how she gets the idea I can't be bossed around. That's all I've been all my life, bossed around, (laughs) by women. Um, um, The thing I've learned about that is, like, just smile and go with it. You ain't going to win. What she did say, though, was that she was very good at picking you up at moments when she felt that you were just doing a Brian Brown. They I were always, her words. That's all I ever do. That you were phoning it in. She was like, wanted to get more from you. Yes. Um, that, that's probably where we have arguments. It's quite interesting because, like, you know, I'm a very instinctive actor. So I just go, like, when, when they say action, I just hope something comes out that basically makes sense to me. But then, you know, she'll, like a couple of times a director will come up and go, oh, Brian, could I do And like, immediately I'm like, don't do that because it's confronting to my instincts. And then I go away and have a cup of tea or whatever. And then I come back <laughs> and I do exactly what they asked me. 
<laughs> so you need that time to go away and have a bit of a think about it. It has to be processed. Yeah. So it takes time for you to go, well, actually, no, I'm not going to fall back on what I have done over no, the I years. I always fall back on what I've done. It's just that it gets moved around slightly. <laughs> I do, though, love what you say about the role that these strong women have played in your life. And because what I find so fascinating about you, Brian, is that you are the quintessential Aussie bloke. But women seem to have been such a bigger influence in your life than men ever have been. Well, you've got to realise I was brought up by a woman. You know, I was thinking about this the other day because, like, I'm a grandfather now of three uh, lovely little ones. And someone said to me, oh, you're going to love being a grandfather. Oh, you're going to love it. You know, and I go, now, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Because I never knew grandparents on either side of the family. So I never knew what a grandparent was. So I didn't have that relationship. So I was going into uncharted territory. So I had to have it happen before I would know what it was like. And of course, like everyone else, the next minute I'm goo-goo-gooing and gargaring like everyone else, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. But it wasn't something that I had a knowledge of. I had to experience something to be able to understand and, and to know whether I enjoyed it or not. And I was actually thinking the other day about the same thing about a father. I really didn't know how to be a father. Not if someone says, how do you be a father? I go, father, man, in the house. Well, there was never a man in the house except me. But... What I learned was my mother was a father as well. In other words, she was the person that taught me. She was the person that would, you know, say that's wrong to do that or that's that, but she also was massive support at all times at every bloody football match and prize giving and everything else. So I learned from her that basically it ain't mother or father, it's the person who is responsible. It's about being responsible. And so I learnt responsibility from my mother. And if that's what a father's supposed to be, then I got it from mum. Your mother, Molly, she was, I mean, she sounded like a formidable woman. She worked incredibly hard. She was tough, but she was loving. Mm. She was, like, she was never educated very far because she had to leave school before third year at school because her mother died. Her father was a a flautist in a band, and so she had to look after the house. So she left school, you know, when she was 14 or something and became the, the lady in the house and looked after her, her father while, you know, with meals and all that sort of stuff. So she learned how to be capable very early on, but she also wasn't educated that well. And I remember one stage I was at school, you had to do an IQ test to see what might be good for you to go into work-wise. And I wasn't at school that day. I was sick or something. So I was told that I would go into town and do the IQ test. So mum takes me into town and they said, oh, you, you should do it as well, Mrs Brown. So mum's sitting opposite me and I'm doing mine, right? And it's an IQ test and we're going through it and then every now and again mum would say, what's the answer to number six? <laughs> mum, it's an IQ test. <laughs> you know, like, like, there isn't an answer, it's whatever you think, you know. And I always love that sort of innocence about like, What's the answer to number six? But the thing about her was, like, she was an only child, so she lost parents at an early age. She had to deal with stuff. But I never, in all the time I was with her, heard her whinge about anything, any predicament. You know, she cleaned houses and she played piano at ballet class. And anybody's house, like she, the butcher, you know, business people, she'd clean their house. She was never jealous of those people. She was always like, they did well, good on them, you know. So she never looked down on herself. 
She took pride in what she did. She didn't have to compare herself against other people. This was what her journey in life was, do it well. And I think from that, she got a lot of pride out of that. She didn't have a low self-esteem because she would tackle the problem no matter what it was, and she would accomplish it and now move on to what the next thing was. So um, she was quite remarkable. She didn't have any help. And when my father left, she basically had to look after a, a newborn baby and a two-year-old and on her own. And um, you know, <laughs> when I think about it at times, you know, like we would go to some, an elderly aunt's place to live for a while. And I sort of think, sort of like couch surfing, isn't it? And then, you know, different people were lovely like that, letting us stay there for two or three months or whatever, until we were able to go to the Bradfield Park migrant hostel, which had migrants, but also Australians who were looking for a housing commission house. And we lived in Neeson Huts, which was great fun. I mean, like... You played games underneath these huts. There was once again, she never complained about it. It was wonderful. She had a place to live. And then we got the house at Panania and she just felt it so wonderful to have her own house. So, um, yeah, I mean, she taught me sort of everything. And you never had a sense, did you, growing up, that you were missing out on something? No, no. Never felt that at all. Always felt, though, always felt like it was my job to get what I wanted. <laughs> you know, like... It didn't... And where did that come from? Oh... Uh, born with it. <laughs> you know, I don't know. You, you, like, I just know that like, in a funny way, life's an adventure. There's stuff out there. Now, that'd be good. I wouldn't mind being a part of that. What do I do to get there? There's two examples of that. Is that one, I used to go to Panania Picture Theatre to see the double, the two Westerns that'd be on on a 1.30 of a Sadiavo. And of course, there'd be lines of kids waiting to get in, right, to pay one and six for your, for your ticket. And often as not, you'd get down to about the, just there, there'd be four people in front of you, ladies say, sold out. And I remember this so distinctly. And of course, the people in front of me would sort of uh, and wander off and I'd just stand there. And I'd just stay there in front of the box office all the time, the lady. And then I'd say to the lady, you sure there isn't room for me to go in? And she'd say, no, it, it's full. And I'd go, all right, yeah. I'd just stay there. And then I'd say, I could sit on the steps. And she'd go, no, you're not allowed to sit on the steps. And I'd just stand there. And then eventually she'd say, oh, go on, go in. <laughs> so you were persistent. Very good, very good lesson. Mm. Don't take no as an answer. Very persistent. But I think where that really came home to me, when I think, you know what it's like yourself, there's shifting doors all the time, choices you can make, whatever. And I remember, like, I decided I wanted to be an actor. So, sold my car, bought a ticket to England. I'd been an insurance salesman with the AMP. I was 25. Which I find bizarre in the sense of you were starting to be an actuary, mm, yeah. working for AMP. Mm. How on earth does someone like that then decide, okay, I'm going to be an actor? Well, first of all, I was very good at maths. I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do after school. I was really disappointed when school was over. I knew it was the best lurk I'd ever have in my life. Three months holiday, lots of mates, play sport. How can I get any better than that? but then I had to do something. And I didn't want to be an engineer, which maths would be good and all sorts. And none of those things appealed. They felt dead boring to me. But someone said, there's this thing called an actuary where you deal with maths and, in, and different insurance companies use them. It wasn't at university at that stage. So you had to do it by correspondence from London or Edinburgh. So I did it by correspondence from London. But the AMP took me on, paid for that. And then I would work for them, but also study with them. But like when I was about 20, a form came around saying... They were doing an end-of-the-year review 
where they were sort of doing little skits and sending up the bosses and the staff would go and watch and anyone that wanted to audition to come round. So I said to a mate of mine, look, you know, this will be good. There'll be girls up there we've never met. Let's go and audition for this thing, whatever that's called means. So it was meeting women. Social. Meeting women. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> listen, that's how life works. Let's get it right. Let's get down to the basics. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, we're kidding ourselves <laughs> with think anything else. Um, <laughs> it's a big inspirer. Anyway, so I go up there and they give me this piece of paper and they said, um, now, look at this and then we're going to get you to read opposite someone. My mate, who was a bit of a larrikin, he just went, I can't do this and he shoved off. They came and asked me. I read opposite, read this thing out, and they said at the end of the day, said, "Listen, if you um you want to be in the review, come to rehearsals tomorrow afternoon." And I enjoyed going to work, but the next morning when I woke up, I was so excited because at the end of the day, I was going to do this thing called rehearsal, which I didn't have a clue what it meant, but I knew it was going to be something really different that was going to be asked of me that never had been asked of me before. And I think it was about being creative, you know. I hadn't had the opportunity to particularly be creative before, except as a kid running around the suburbs. You're, you're very creative there in all sorts of ways. And your imagination, I remember all as a little boy too. All of that, you know, playing in the swamps, pretending you were someone jumping from trees. You, you lived in an adventurous mindset. But what about when you would be waiting to go and see those double features? Mm. Did that also awaken a part of you as a little boy, seeing things being played out, stories being told on the big screen? I thoroughly enjoyed watching the movies, but you've got to remember, they were Americans. So you couldn't dream of doing what they were doing. You didn't do that. They did that, which is what was so exciting in the 70s, late 60s and 70s, when we suddenly had a resurgence of film industry. And that, if you were a part of it at that time, which a number of us were, was beyond exciting. So you moved back, didn't you? You went to the UK. Well, I went to the UK, worked for two and a half years there. The final year was at the National Theatre of Great Britain under Peter Hall. He'd taken over from Olivia. I had a great year, learned a lot from it, came back for a holiday to see my mum. Picking up on that, when you were there in the UK, you were doing Shakespeare, all these Mm. things that you hadn't done at school. No, but I had, I joined an amateur theatre after that review the Genesian Theatre in Kent Street in Sydney. I spent four years in amateur theatre, which was so much fun. And also at that stage, I'd stop being an actuary and I'd become a salesman. And we all know as a salesman, no one has a clue where you are as long as you get your figures in on a Friday. So, so what, you were outperforming, were you? I was, you know, like the theatre was taking up my time down there for rehearsals or, you know, getting there at three o'clock in the afternoon to help out or whatever. So, you know, that was what was exciting me. The being a salesman was allowing me to do that, you know. So, and then, you know, when I was 25, I thought, well, you've got to stop pulling your put, have a go at this or get on with a career. So that's when I sold my car, bought a ticket to England and, and went to England. But that thing about persistence or the thing you learnt on the streets and stuff like that growing up, like I did in the suburbs, and how to take advantage of things. On the way to England... I went to Mykonos for about three days and there was a shared a house there with a few other young blokes. One of the young blokes was a boy who lived in a council house in uh, Chelsea and he said, what are you, why are you going to England? I said, I want to be an actor. He said, oh, my father's in the theatre. Of course, my ears pricked up immediately. I said, what's he do? He said, he's a fireman. Now, at that stage, a lot of people would have turned off their ears. 
But I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, in every theatre in England, there's a fire screen and a fireman has to be in attendance for every performance in case a fire breaks out. He said, but you go and see him. He'll take you to the chief fireman. You'll get a card that'll allow you to work backstage in every theatre. And I did. And backstage, I met a couple of actors who did it part-time there and they told me I got to ride away to the provinces, which I did, and then eventually I got asked to go to the provinces and then I got myself into working in theatre and education and so now I had an actor's card as well and, you know, one after the other after the other that led to the, the national. And then you, though, decided to come back to Australia because mm. there was this, as you say, excitement around finally we were hearing Australian voices on mm. screen and we were sharing stories, mm. our stories. Mm. I mean, I came back and I went to the Nimrod, which was in Nimrod Street in Surrey Hills, and that was the precursor to being at Belvoir Street and all that. And I saw a play called How Does Your Garden Grow, written by the playwright, who's a, and it was an ex-crim, and I went, God, I recognise these characters. I can play these characters. I know who these characters are. And in London, I'd seen a David Williamson play called What If You Died Tomorrow, which was sort of about a Harry M. Miller-type character. And it was an Australian play. And I remember watching it and thinking and being a bit envious of all those blokes on stage being Australian and thinking it was such a great play. So when I came back, it was, you know, really interesting what was going on. I was pulled by what do I do here? I, you know, I was starting a career in England. I was in really good company. But this was the stuff that was exciting. But I think, <laughs> I think the thing that made the decision for me was I went out to Bondi one day and on a hot day and I peeled off and I walked down through a whole load of sort of girls that were half naked, you know, <laughs> getting a tan, dived into the water, felt that ocean around me on a hot day and the salt and the water and came out and tried desperately not to be looking at any of these girls, but at the same time trying to notice every one of them, which was a really difficult thing to do. I then walked across the road to the Bondi pub that had an outstairs beer garden and I sat down and I had a beer in a glass with a head that big and I took the beer and I thought, I ain't going back. Life is simple. Isn't it? And also to the ocean, because you started surfing when you were, what, 15? Probably. Because you used to get the train. Train. I used to get the train to Beverly Hills and hitch to Cronulla, and we had our boards stashed in Cronulla, yeah. So the ocean, I mean, the call of the ocean, and I mean, that is so, I think, quintessentially Australian, that sense of the waves and the salt drying on your is. skin. You know, I, I was looking at the television this morning, it was a hot day yesterday, and all the people at Bondi and Manly, and, you know, just you know, standing in that water and a wave coming over. I mean, it is, we're very lucky. It's a unique feeling. It's, you know, like we get it in this country. You don't get it in colder climate countries or, or in Europe the same way. You know, it's splashing on you. It just feels so great, you know, diving down deep and hugging the sand and stuff. It's pretty wonderful. You know, it's our thing. It is. You, of course, then did Break a Morant, which mm. was such, I mean, it is an iconic film. Yeah, I love film. it. My parents love it. I remember my grandparents adored it. But I was really interested to read that once you'd done that, you didn't know if you were any good. Well, <laughs> yes. well, you see, a couple of stories about that. Bruce Beresford asked me to play Hancock in it. You know, I read the part and I thought, well, I've got to do this because, you know, it's a movie and I enjoy doing movies. But, you know, I was a bit worried about the character because he just seemed to toss out one-liners and 
all this sort of stuff. And all the other people seem to be far more intelligent than him and everything. And I had to have a moustache. And I remember about three weeks before we started filming, I, I rang Bruce and I said, hey, mate, listen, you know, do I have to have the moustache? You know, you know, you can be without the moustache. He said, Brian, he's a real character. He had a moustache. You've got to have a moustache. I said, all right. So I started to grow the moustache. And when I went down for rehearsals for about three days before we started shooting, I felt okay about my moustache. And I go into rehearsals and in walks John Waters, who has this thing that's just so perfect hanging on his top lip. And then in comes Rod Mulliner, who has one even more beautiful. And I sort of thought, oh, Christ, that's what moustaches are. You know, like, my fellow's a bit disappointing, really. Anyway, then and then we did the movie and stuff like that. And I didn't particularly, you know, I didn't like how I looked particularly in it. And also, you know, I, I'd throw out these one-liners and everything like that. And I had some nice scenes in there and stuff. And I was jumping on all the boars' wives and stuff like that. I was, you know, a bit of a, it was a bit of a larrikin sort of character and everything. Anyway, as soon as the movie finished, I shaved my moustache off within five minutes of having finished and thought, well, if they want any more pickups, they have to get another face or another moustache or something. And so I wasn't all, you know, I knew the movie was a strong movie and everything. But I, you know, I thought it could be the last movie I do. And then the movie came out. And people, you know, went around going, geez, I like Hancock, your character. He's going, and, and yeah. And I went, yeah, no, I do too. Yeah. You know, yeah, I've always liked him. <laughs> <laughs> so was that it? Was it sort of the bravado that got you through that almost second guessing of yourself? No, I, I mean, I knew how to play him, but I didn't know what he exemplified. You know, I knew what the Edward Woodward character exemplified. He took on the establishment. My bloke was a bloke who always said, I've enlisted in the war because there's a depression on at home and I've got a wife and kid and I've got to get some money. So he wasn't doing it for love of country. He was doing it because they had no other choice, right? And I didn't necessarily understand, therefore, how powerful that was in terms of what the movie was saying. His simple humanity... I didn't necessarily get in reading it, you know. I mean, I had good fun playing it. I always have good fun playing it. But, you know, I sort of thought, well, he's, he's you know, I'm playing the fool anyway, so whatever. <laughs> you talk about simple humanity and it reminds me of when I was talking with your wife, Rachel. And she was sharing how what it was that first attracted her to you. And that was your sense of the values that you had, your humanity. That was what drew her to you. No, I think she was just horny and saw me as, you know, scapegoat. Because you were playing, you were in Thornbirds together. You fell in love on the set. But, <laughs> but she does also say that <laughs> you are so cheeky. <laughs> that, that you had a moral compass that she recognised and I think hadn't had or, or seen within her life until she met you. Yeah, she's talked about that. Look, I was given things by my mother you know, right, wrong, you know, and, and, and also as I moved through life, I was, thir I was 34 or something when I met Rachel. So, you know, I'd experienced lots of things, seen people make decisions, couldn't work out why they made their decisions. I sort of saw, you know, like, and I figured that 
you know, you had to mix who you truthfully were with what you'd learnt. I guess by that stage when I met her, I had a pretty good view of what was important in your choices. And maybe, you know, with her background, like maybe she didn't have the luck that I had to have a mother who, you know, I watched every day the choices she made, you know. Uh, Rachel had a family there where it wasn't so much that there was a, a nanny looking after. So I think maybe that, you know, and it's quite interesting that thing about us, about how affected we are by what we're given during our growing up, during being a child. It is massively important what our view of the world, of how to behave in the world. What are we meant to get from the world and what are we meant to deliver to the world? It is. As you said earlier too, when you became a grandparent, I mean, you mentioned about, well, how to be a father, but then also, well, how am I going to be a grandparent when I haven't seen that or haven't had that modelled for me? I was fascinated that you're actually in the delivery suite when Matilda (laughs) gave birth to your grandchild. I mean, I would not want my dad in the delivery suite. But So how did that unfold? Well, quite truthfully, I was actually having dinner with our now Prime Minister and someone else and Rachel and I were having dinner and we went to go home and then we hadn't checked our phone and it was saying like, where are you, Mum? I'm having the baby now. I'm over at Terry Hills Hospital. And Mum was, and Rachel was meant to be the, I don't know. The doula. Doula, whatever that means. And she was supposed to be that. And so it was like, oh, quick, like we better get over there. I went, well, we can't drive you know, because we've had a drink. So we had to get a taxi over to Terry Hills, go in there. Well, of course, it was going on and on. And, and it was a, like over there, it was a new hospital. So I had these big rooms. They had a bloody half a swimming pool in there. They had all this sort of stuff and a lounge and everything. So I was there while she was going through all the labour and, and I, no one said you had to sit outside or anything. And then at one stage, I fell asleep on the lounge there while she's screaming. And then as the baby started to be like I was sitting behind her, I didn't think I'd better go and watch the baby being born. Um, Not that, you know, Tilda would have even known. She was screaming so much. But like, yeah, so then the baby... You were patting her head, weren't you? I was behind her, you know, stroking her head, saying it's all right, you know, like, uh, and she's screaming, leave me alone, get out. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm having a baby. (laughs) Oh, it'll be all right. Your mother had one. (laughs) Oh, that would not be helpful. Your mother had three. This is nothing. (laughs) Anyway, so, yeah, I ended up, the baby came out. I was in there, so I got to see it immediately as, you know, like the little thing, and then it was handed to Till and everything. So I was there, yeah. No one said get out. I mean, was that a real moment for you or was it something that took time to process and... Oh, look, I had been around for the birth of my own three children. So, like... You know, the, the birthing thing's a miracle anyway. All you're just hoping is that everything will be all right. That's your first thing, you know. I'm always amazed that they are in the majority of cases, you know, how you know, how does it work? You know, an egg and a sperm and all that, and the next minute your arms and legs come out and your hair. I mean, I, I, it's, it's unbelievable. The miracle of birth is unbelievable how it all works. But so, I, you know, that was the main thing. Is it is he going to be all right? And it was a little boy. Was it going to be all right? You know, is Tilly all right? And all that sort of stuff. What that means to you is you don't just immediately go, oh, how fantastic, this is my grandchild. You know, I'll love it till, you know, the cows come home. I mean, you don't behave like that, you know. Your heart has a place in it, but, you know, you're also dealing with it intellectually as well as like there is something, isn't that good, everyone's all right. You're dealing with all those things. You know, it's as 
it's as the days wear on and you go to, to see it and, and, and you're with it. And then, you know, your understanding of who that is. And, and then I think there's like a moment where you go, oh, I love that, don't I? You know, just a moment where you go, yeah, I haven't said that about so-and-so's baby, <laughs> but I've said it about my daughter's baby. My know. grandson. My grandson. Mm. You're very close to your kids and your daughter, Matilda, she helped you recognise that you were going through anxiety. She said to you, oh, what you're describing to me is often what I feel when I'm... Auditioning. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, I had this... I was doing a movie in America called Along Came Polly and I ended up with an infection. It was a blood infection. I didn't know and... I had this Sunday where I had to do a load of stunts and then I was going to have a week off where I went back to Sydney and then I'd fly to Hawaii for the next bit of the movie. And that Sunday I said, look, we've got to get these stunts done pretty quickly. I'm not feeling good. I was, you know, sweating. I wasn't feeling good. And then I started to talk gibberish and they took me to the, they said, you're coming to the, to the hospital. I said, no, no, I'll be all right. It's just a flu. I'll get over it. And then, you know, no, no, you're coming to the hospital. And I realized where something was wrong when I walked to the emergency and the lady said, um, so what's wrong? And I said, I, I've had too many lollies. And as I'm saying I've had too many lollies, I'm thinking that's not what I want to say. Why is that coming out of my mouth? Anyway, then they rushed me in to intensive care and I was in hospital for a week and whatever. And I had, uh, if I'd have got on the plane that night, I wouldn't have woken up. I'd have gone into septicemic shock and I'd have died. So what I didn't realize was that I carried that a bit. Whenever I'd travel, even if I'd traveled to Adelaide, I'd start to feel this anxiety. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what was happening to me. My, my body was reacting in a certain way. And so I thought there was something physically wrong with me. So I had a course of, um, of antibiotics about things to see if that was the problem. And then eventually I went to Melbourne with Matilda and she had a little movie that was showing it somewhere there. And I went there and I said to, I told Tildy what was happening to me. And she said, Dad, that just sounds like me when I go to an audition. And I thought, oh my God, this isn't a physical problem. This could be a mental problem. And then I said to my GP, uh, I want to talk to a psychologist. And I did. And we got to the bottom of it. And uh, because once you've got anxiety, You've got a muscle that's there that's doing something and other things can, it doesn't have to be the fact that I was flying or that, that had initially given it to me, the, the scare of, my fear was, I think, that, oh, I'm going away. What if they don't have a good hospital like the hospital in Los Angeles that looked after me and, and saved my life? What if I'm in somewhere where they don't have that hospital or they get to me too late? So I think I didn't realise that that was going on with me. But once you've got it, I think other things could then trigger it. Well, then you start to catastrophize. How are you now? I'm very good. I'm very good. I mean, it's like any of those. I mean, I'm thoroughly interested in the whole thing of mental health and psychology and that because I, I went through a thing of finding this out and, like, I find it very interesting just how much you can project something that's going to happen. Of course, who says it's going to happen? But you will play with that fear and then you start to get yourself into trouble. And a lot of people take negative stuff on board and the more negative they've got in there, the more they're looking, you know, the more they'll get into trouble. So, and I'm a, you know, a pretty optimistic sort of bloke and whatever. So it was strange to have this thing going on with me. 
but um, I don't have anything like that. But if I do at times feel a little bit anxious about something, and I've got three kids and three grandchildren, so I've got plenty of time to be anxious about things, I go, all right, so that's liable to be it. So now, if something like that happens, and it hardly happens, but if it does, I go, oh, it's you again, is it? Okay, well, you know, do your bit and then wander off home, will you, because I've got things to do. So I don't go, oh, no, it's like this. I go, oh, that's what it is. Oh, okay, well, we, we know how to deal with you. I think you talking in that way is really powerful because for a lot of blokes especially, they're not comfortable talking in the way that you are, but also getting help. That can be a very big step for people. Yeah. Uh, look, you know, I, I know people that have had trouble, mental health trouble in ways, and I can understand not knowing how to deal with it or talk about it. I completely understand it. And I sometimes get a bit, um, you know, shut off with people about saying, you know, men are stoic and don't want to, you know, like, yeah, we are. We don't want to whinge. You know, we want, we go, no, I should be able to deal with this. But, you know, when that time comes where you really know you can't deal with it, it's fine to go and say, listen, I'm in trouble. Give us a hand. And I always say, like, if you break a leg, you're going to say, can someone fix this for me? Because it can be fixed. And if something goes wrong with your brain, with your mind, starts playing games there, there's someone that can go, hey, mate, been there, we've done that, let me show you how to deal with this. We'll help you get through this. And, you know, PTSD is a big thing out there, not just the soldiers or police force and that. You know, that sort of trauma can come from all sorts of things during your life, early life with a family that might be have some violence in it or whatever, and you don't know that that's what's, you know, sitting in there and, and causing you these problems at times. So, yeah, I'd always say, look, go and talk to someone. They can only help you, <laughs> you know? You what's know? the worst that can happen? What's the worst that can happen? And it's good that we sort of, you know, it's out there on the table now, just like just like breaking a leg or breaking an arm or something. You know, we're t- happy to go on to antibiotics to fix something. So um, if something can fix the mind and help it get it in order, it's not a shameful thing. It's like, I think you're a bit of a dill if you don't go and do it. Well, I love my antidepressants and I often tell people that it helps me stay well. That's the, you know, and that's the point. It's about staying well and being able to contribute and being able to be capable. So is there something wrong with that? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I want to talk about Hollywood. Yeah. Because you were huge in Hollywood as well. You've worked with Tom Cruise, Sigourney Weaver, a whole lot of other big stars. Were you ever nervous with any of those sort of names? No. No. Because they're all lovely. They're all lovely. Um, the, the great thing about all those things, you know, and, and Paul McCartney, I worked with of Paul, played his, played his manager in a movie. I mean, all these people, you know, they're, they're great. They're lovely. I mean, Tom was 25 and I was 40, you know, and we used to ha- argue about things, you know, and he'd go, <laughs> and he'd go, you know, what, 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 why do you, why are you arguing with me on this? Why do you, why are you arguing about this thing? And I'd say, because I know better than you. And you say, why do you know better than me? I say, because I'm 40 and you're 25. You know, and that would, that would annoy him and I know it would annoy But like, we had a lot of fun doing that stuff. But the thing you know is like, all of those people, they just work hard. I mean, Sigourney, like when we were up in the mountains of Rwanda doing Gorillas in the Mist and with the gorillas, you know, like the big job. It's a, a physically huge job going up and down that mountain every day and all that stuff. There's wonderful things, of course, you know, being with those gorillas, which, you know, just doesn't happen to people. 
but she works her ass off and Tom's a great worker and respectful to people. Paul's as funny as hell because he's a Liverpudlian. You know, all those, all those different people that you get to work with. And, you know, Ben Stiller is, you know. I love Ben Stiller. Oh, he's so funny. He's so funny. Like they left the camera on him one time when he was doing a scene on a boat and, you know, driving the boat. And he finished the scene, but they left the camera on him and he kept just doing this improv stuff and driving a boat by a bloke who couldn't drive a boat. And I thought I was watching Charlie Chaplin, incredibly funny physical comedian, you know, and in that was Jennifer Anderson. And Jennifer was, you know, she knitted most of the time. But, you know, like lovely, comfortable people who just work hard. You know, they don't take it for granted. And love what they do. They love what they do. They know how lucky they are. Playtime. Yeah, like you. So you're 76? Yep. See, wow. That's... Yeah. You know the good thing about that? What? Is the other day Sam turned 76 too. <laughs> He'd been 75 for a couple of months longer than he should have been. So this is, of course, Sam Neill, mm. who you guys are super tight and love to tease each other, really, don't you? Well, he's learned a lot from me. <laughs> <laughs> Will you continue acting for as long as you can, Brian? Well, I don't have a reason to stop. You know, and this is the interesting thing, is society's getting older. So that means there's got to have older stories too. You know, people are going to want stories of 76 plus. And I mean that quite practically. You know, stories aren't just a, for 30-year-olds, 30 35 They've got their stories, but there are older stories. And, you know, as you know, and I certainly know, is you never stop dealing with things. You never stop struggling. You never stop being thrilled. You never stop engaging with the business of living. And so we always want to see stories about that from the people who have done it or are doing it like yourself. So, you know, until they go, oh, he's too ugly, I'll keep going. So what's your next story? Well, you know, I've got Court coming out where I played. I also was lucky enough to do a for Netflix, uh, The Boy Who Swallowed the Universe by Trent Dalton, and that'll come out in January. I love that book. It's lovely, isn't it? He's great, Trent Dalton. And then um, I was lucky enough to uh, just finished a movie with uh, uh, this romantic comedy that was here called Anyone But You with a couple of very sharp young American stars in Sydney Sweeney and Glenn Powell, which should be a lot of fun. It should be a lot of fun. And show Sydney like I doubt it's been seen before. If the movie works, there'll be a lot of people trying to buy a ticket to come to Sydney. Uh, right now, I've got a second book coming out in November called The Drowning, which um, I'll go on the publicity tour and go around to festivals and, you know, tell a whole lot of lies. Oh, which, nonsense. Well, that's the best fun about life, <laughs> sitting there in front of three or 400 people and telling lies. <laughs> no, entertaining <laughs> and thrilling us. That's what it's about, Brian Brown. <laughs> and thank you for doing that for us all. You are you are such a legend. Do you see yourself as a national icon that so many of us see you as, that quintessential Aussie bloke? No, I've got a wife, three kids and three grandkids. I haven't got time for anything else. <laughs> well, thank you, though, for making time for us today. Pleasure. Good and fun. it's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you very much, Jess. Oh, my goodness, that chat with Brian. What a moment. Oh, he is simply extraordinary. Isn't he cheeky? Isn't he wise? He's so warm. He's talented. 
and he's so down to earth. And the thing that really struck me with that chat, and I just adore, is that he is this quintessential Aussie man, but the most powerful influences in his wife are women. And we are pretty extraordinary, aren't we, as women? So I just love that. Now, you can catch Brian in court. It is streaming on stand right now. He plays the Prime Minister, a character called Warren Whistle. And I have seen it. It is funny. It is naughty. It is cheeky. And it really is something fantastic. So don't miss it. For more big conversations like this, subscribe and follow the Jessro Big Talk Show podcast. It means you will stay up to date with all of my special guests. And if there's someone you know who you think will enjoy this conversation, it is so easy to share it with them. I know I'm going to share it with my mum and with my dad. All you need to do is to just tap the three dots on the top right-hand side of your screen on your phone and pass it along. Now, if you love this episode with Brian Brown, I reckon you are going to love my chat with Brian's wife, Rachel. Part of you is taking advantage of that. You know, I'm a pretty girl. I'm going to use that. And that's my currency. My face is my fortune. I'm going to go as far with that as I can. But you don't really have much option. And there's nothing else that's being offered to you. So, yes, I did take advantage of that. And I'm grateful for that. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show is hosted by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. She's a wonderful leopard lady. Audio imager, Nat Marshall. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. 